Anglo-Saxon being, which which am I right is a particular kind of yes. topic of of interest for you. Well, we can let's just frame it around the question of what is Englishness or what is Anglo-Saxonness, hmm. right? Because that's the question we really ask when we think about this. But the trouble is, when we ask this question, we don't really know what we're asking. We we think about double-decker buses, we think about this sort of thing, right? And you, even George Orwell, all these people would have these lists of things that are Englishness, right? But mm. what we're looking at when we ask this question is Englishness. You've got English is identifying a people. Ness is a quality that we're supposed to have. And mm-hmm. so when you list those things like buses and the like, you've got the expression, the external press of what this Englishness mm. thing is, right? It's the press of it in the world, right? So mm-hmm. when you're listing those things, you're not getting to the essence of it. So when we look to the metaphysics, we are metaphysics, but it comes from physics. Meta, we are that thing, right? So what's the essence of this, though, that sends it first and imbues it into the landscape, right? Mm. There's a reciprocal uprising between those two things. It gets brought into the landscape, into the country, right? It becomes a sort of semi-sacred thing, the countryside. So it's, mm. it, it's, it, it gives back and forth. But really the essence of it looking into our being what's distinct about us it's a who isn't it okay english is a who it's different for the frenchman than it is for the englishman when the frenchman encounters it he feels something different right when you're a foreigner you go to another country you might even notice it more but it's different experience than it is for when you're in your own country so that tells you that there's something in your being and then when you notice it right so Mm -hmm. It's a pattern of behavior. It's a pattern of behavior. Fundamentally, you're looking for something that's distinct and most distinct about it, not just a list of things like we said, like a bus is. And not just something like, oh, the English cook more or boil more food, right? (laughs) Because you go, well, what use is that, right? Mm -hmm. But that could be a clue. That could be a clue to something. So what you're Mm -hmm. looking for is what's the most distinct thing about them. And that's where you look to, okay, what are the things they sort of worship? The heroes, course right Mm. so they are the patterns of metic patterns of behavior that are like ground out ground out riverbeds that have just been bored out over time that take a long time to decay right so that's what you're looking to you're looking to what that pattern is even scruton had trouble getting to this he talked about the common law and various things like that but they they are the outward appearance of, of an inward behavioral pattern that you get from the heroes and robin hood's one of them right a great mm-hmm. one, which is related to what actually, uh, what actually brings about this common law structure is this behavioral tendency, right? So when people talk about values, what we're really talking about is unconscious, what's in the unconscious. Just for, for all intents and purposes, we're always talking about the unconscious here. Mm-hmm. A value is not a, oh, these are our values. These are our, uh, some politicians told you something, and said, oh, the values are, oh, we're tolerant, we're tolerant, <laughs> right? This yeah. is a proposition, it's a proposition they've forced upon you to make you, uh, you know, or it's just a, or it's just a badly, a bad propositional rendering of something that's unconscious. What a value mm. really is, is a attractor in your unconscious. So when someone displays a particular English behavior, let's say, you're attracted towards it. Or, mm. or when it's some behavior, it's attraction and rejection, good, bad, in your unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. So say someone like, uh, 
let's just I know some people don't like Tommy Robinson at the moment, but let's just talk about his initial behaviors when he first came on the scene. Mm-hmm. You're, there's certain behaviors. There's been a breach of the English moral order, which is uh, which is in your being, right? It's a breach of what is right, mm-hmm. written on your heart. You're a Christian, you understand that. It's, a, it's, it's, a, the, it's written on your heart, but it's not formal. Mm-hmm. So there's been a breach mm-hmm. of that. He is drawn to enact something, this tyranny, right, that has occurred. He's drawn to do that. Anyway, that's all in the unconscious. He's seen a pattern that is a rejection in his being, his unconscious, let's say, right? And he's been pushed towards to enact that. Let's call him a Robin Hood figure, right? Mm. That's in all of our unconscious too. It's not just him. It's not just him. So there is a situation. And when I describe these things, everyone here who's listening at the moment, that might be on the new right or dissident right or whatever we're calling it now. Think about this in in comparison, this pattern in in comparison to what we are, right? There's been a breach in the sort of traditional moral order of of our way of being, which is written on the Englishman's heart, let's say, in his soul. The Mm -hmm. state, which has a propositional law about, is, is in deep discontinuity with what is written on our being. What happens, what's in our being, you could call it an archetype in our being, is mm-hmm. to have a, fig- a figure that will rise to resist that. And so in us, and then say some figure like Tommy Robinson, he is pushed to resist that uh, un-English pattern of behavior. And then we are impelled to support him, right? So that's what we're talking about, values. But those values mm-hmm. are essentially linked to, you could call them archetypes or hyper-agents. An agent, an agent is something that can feed back from the environment and alter its or alter its way as procedures to achieve its outcome. That's what something agentative. Mm-hmm. Robin Hood is a hyper agent, as it's something that is above. Right, it's between all of us. It's distributed. Let's say, right, mm-hmm. as an archetype, because we know this from the mythos. We know this. Every village was having uh, imitating these Robin Hood stories, right across England. Mm. So it's let's just assume that it's in the unconscious, right? This archetype, let's say. So mm-hmm. those are connected to values. A value is essentially an archetype; it's a pieces of an archetype. So that this is all going to be very raw, by the way, because I'm mid writing about this. But you invited me on, <laughs> yeah. So I thought I might as well talk about what I'm talking about. But the point is, it's in your unconscious. You're being drawn towards it. It's not something someone tells you you have an idea about. It's there over generations. And mm-hmm. when you see someone enacting those archetypes or values that are these attractors that impel you towards them, the, them to help them or them towards the behavior that's un-English. You're, yeah, mm-hmm. that's how it works. It's unconscious. Anyway, I, I, I feel like you're tapping into something deeply human in that we are narrative and we're relational. And, and that is a, a much richer way that, that humans exist than propositional. We, we mm. you know, we, we attempt to phrase things and expound in, in, in many ways. That's what, what, what I struggle with with language. I'm, I've got ideas in my head that are formed in an abstract sense. And then you mm. try and boil them down into language but the, the the actual essence what you're describing is much more to do with people's experiences the heroes that they were raised with the 
the the stories and narratives the things that that we uh, act out we are mirroring and reflecting and patterning on on things that we feel to be in our our shared history um and that's been uh, i guess a, a a development in in our history that's been fairly um fairly natural and it's happened as you said in the unconscious so what i'm interested in is i guess, I guess my next question then um could that process be made artificial C- can can you form a nationality by projecting heroes and myths and narratives onto them you know how many generations does it take for the spirit of a people to to radically change or is or is it deep and in, enduring and actually it that you know c- can uh, persist through whatever the leaders try try to do to that uh, spirit. Well, if it's deep and enduring, if you believe Jung and a bunch of other people, then then this is it's an epoch thing, a thousand years. So you're not getting okay. rid of it in the modern mm-hmm. age. What happens mm-hmm. is you have all this semblance of a propositional and particular enforced top downness, which has happened, right? So mm. it survives, though. I mean, Jung even mm. talks about Woden still surviving. And you can see that in whatever you want to talk about, the wars and whatnot. But those things still survive. Um, when you look at the Romans, you, he would say, or he would say that, the okay, that and the Greeks, if you have 2,000 years, then those, their gods are kind of gone in a way. Because you could relate these things to gods, these deep set values. So we know that the liberal blank slate theory is BS. There's been enough experiments to tell us that, right? So we know there's some sort of, transmission between intergenerational of this stuff so just because they can quickly propagandize across you see this in russia too they tried to propagandize but the russianness survives russianness survives mm. despite despite that um but yes you, you 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 can have a quick flash in the pan government or whatnot but yeah it survives deep down you might want to identify that with a procedural passing some people might say oh it's epigenetic or whatever i'm more i take the metaphysics approach and the depth psychology and the absorption of it in the developmental stage whatever you take to be its um, transmission yeah it survives its depth right and, th- and i'm not the only person that has talked about this before i mean you might look to all the stuff i'm i've basically riffed on uh up uh, in the conversation dugan is someone who talks about uh this as a sociological unit he calls it the narod the narod which is like a, a soul uh, above the ethnos, right? It's a, a metaphysical soul. There's a, a, a Vola talks about it as a as a as a thing. You can possess this soul, and of course, you've got Spengler who who, who talks about it as well. So, um, and there's others. That's not. And Jung is, of course, another thing he talks about in his Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Talks about clan values and things that are deeply embedded and gods. He, he essentially talks about gods that used to be external are brought internal. So we're just changing the way we're talking about things. The ancients mm-hmm. saw these things, but as we layered on propositions and ideas across on on being, we stopped seeing them. We were drawn away from that mm-hmm. first. When we asked that first metaphysical question of what is, what is, that's metacognition. Before that, it we're just mm-hmm. sort of imprinted i'm going back ancient to greek times right that's the first western question what is what is hmm. or what is that 
because when you say what we're talking about being the is mm -hmm. is metaphysics which is you the bubble but what mm. is that what is that and the what is the being you know behind it right so mm -hmm. you, basically that moment is astonishing because you're going what is what is and then ah that's a gift from god right it's a gift from god the mm -hmm. human is more than an animal they're being brought in think about it. is that not true that we're being brought mm. in i might be taking this conversation away from but it is metaphysics no, no. So being where think about it. when you know things when you know you're knowing being nothing else has that but man heaven and earth mm. right mm. not an animal but anyway yeah so so the, these metaphysical layers i find really fascinating because um i i think i've been um influenced so heavily by the kind of unspoken metaphysics the kind of positivist post-enlightenment kind of yeah. you know inch deep weak <laughs> you know ter <laughs> yeah. terrible metaphysics that yeah. that sucks the the life and magic out of the universe and and is also you know sort of smarmy and and yet unbelievable because mm. I, I think we we do we have some intuitions about metaphysics and um and and i think people both know how to speak in the dry scientific way that is polite but but yeah. don't have a deep belief in the world being that way mm -hmm. um i mean pe people are pretty mixed up but um i i guess i i guess i, I mean, part of my struggle here is that i can't i can't help but immediately want to ask uh kinds of questions about metaphysics like how can how can you test a metaphysical test, claim yeah. which yeah. is fundamentally like yeah. an incoherent <laughs> question to ask yeah. um, so, so uh, i i guess the um i i guess the question maybe then is where what what are the the richest sources for for beginning to dig into metaphysics um you you mentioned um the, the ancient greeks so like i i know that you've got plato making claims about there being a realm of of forms mm. um and then you've got aristotle has a different take and then to some degree i think the new testament writers are are swimming in those waters and responding to the ancient greeks and and from uh from the perspective of us uh who, who still have that anglo um you know influence that that bear some of the, the same ideas and thoughts as our ancestors we we have also some uh pagan you know influence that the, the there's a a different metaphysics the kind of pre-christian or i guess yeah. pre-roman era right so um we you know the his, history is re replete with strange and alien ideas to modern mm. ears where, where do you even get get started yeah well those valuations are still there a lot of those pagan valuations they're just putting mm. in their prop their place in the hierarchy right you can mm -hmm. see them you might even say that uh, thor is arthur in in the, that mm. mythos or and merlin is is woden right mm. their wow. their patterns of action are that and they're sort of integrated into this thing and we take possession mm -hmm. of this arthur therian mythos it's, it doesn't barely resembles what the English did with it. When you look to the Welsh stuff, it really it, it's sort of taken 
and brought in mm. and placed under Christ, right? Sorry, pagans, you, you know, it's, it's, it's integrated <laughs> under that. I'm going to be rude to them. I've got some people on my channel that are pagans. That's fine. I'd rather mm. than be that, the materialists, because there's, there's no, the case for materialism is, is completely no stronger than it is for idealism. When you look, Bernardo Cutstrop has a, a completely rigorous case, and physicalists like John Vallecki acknowledge this when they go and talk to him. So, this idea that's material, or and it's good to look for empirical stuff to back up what you're talking about. So, your instinct you sort of are alluding to earlier that, ah, uh, okay, uh, this uh, English idea of being empir empiricist and looking for that's fine. But when you take this approach of skeptardness, this sort of Oh, I'm superior because I skepticize everything, right? Okay, yeah, right. Fine. But <laughs> that's your this your this is a value. You have a certain valuation for this. Step back, ironic distancing, really, Brechtian mm. distancing, as would you could call it. That's mm. what you are. Um, that's not necessarily us. We're not like that. Empirical just means really. I mean, people say, "Oh, the English are the empirical people." Nah, okay, there were philosophers that were that, but it's more earthy. I'd say deep, a deeply traditional, actually, the instinct is deeply traditional. And you see this in mm. Robin Hood. He's a radical, mm. cons radical traditionalist. The moral mm. order is breached and he returns it. His whole thing is about returning it to the breach that the sort of, you could call it a tech, the system of techne, which is the state, which is kind of like Platonism. And Platonism, in a way, Plato's ideas become sort of uh, petrified, right? This idea mm -hmm. of you've, got, you've collected these truths, that are now, ah, we have this truth as a proposition. They're disconnected from the original being and, those, and, and thinking those things are eternal truths. And yet something happens when you do that is when you slowly, it, it disvalues everything over time, right? It's energy, it's vitality. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens in this Robin Hood legend in a way is that the law, which is a proposition, the law, right, has become stagnant and static uh, with the sheriff is, and he's the embodiment of that, of the techne, of the technology, to enforce the will of this petrified thing that is now on English, because it's disconnected from the English, what's written on Englishman's heart, like we said. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a solution to that petrification of Platonism. It's what's mm -hmm. written on the heart underneath the propositional of the Englishman, which is not formal and you can never fully capture, and is de deeply traditional, let's say, uh, to and not revolutionary. So he attacks this state, he undermines it, he ridicules it, uh, devalues it, and he's supported by the people because they have that pattern within, and they notice that that's the English behavior, the appropriate English behavior, right? Mm. To reform it so it's no longer dead and unmeaningful, so it's no longer connected to, so, sorry, so it is connected to what is, um, what is true, the truth, right? because it's become disconnected from being. So they're radically traditional. They are connected more to being. It's that folk uprising that's written on everyone's heart. Um, so in a sense, you were, you were sort of asking about how do we connect to this metaphysics? It's through this mythos, looking to this mythos, to, to seeing what this mythos captures, because you wonder why. Well, isn't it just a myth? But okay, if you're trying to connect with it, these uh, deep ways of being, you're trying to connect with something that's outside of modernism to look for the gold. You're looking for the gold to find the gold within. Basically, what you're looking for, what Robin has, he has the Rob, he has the gold within that we're seeking, right? As mm. a character, the mythos. You've got to realize the mythos is an expression of a tendency over time. 
It captures something that transcends the individual. And it's more valuable than historical evidence because historical evidence is sort of captured by one writer, right, on a particular time. Robin Hood is a, is a, is a capture across a big span of time. We know it was enacted in every village in England, on May Day, uh, imitating the procedures of Robin Hood. So we know that's the use of mythos. It's a long capture over many people, retold in pubs, the ballads, right? If you go to the original mm -hmm. ballad, it's this long capture of English being. So it's more reliable as a generalized truth, could call it a transcendent truth of, of who we are. So that's the use of it. Because you, you have to ask, what's the utility of all this stuff? Doing it, asking who you are, asking what Englishness is. What you're really mm -hmm. trying to do is clear the semblance, you're trying to remove the semblance. What does that do when you can? when you align your propositional mind with what being truly is, is it's depowering, it's vit vital. When you connect it, it's like a rush of the truth. It's a rush of the truth of who we are. So that's one use. It's going to give you energy for whatever you're doing to properly align elements of your being. Uh, the other thing is to clear propaganda. The other thing is to cast a vision. Because if you don't know what your situation is and who you are, you can't cast a vision. You're in delusion. If you really mm. understand what the Englishman is, deep down, even yourself, where do I come from? What is this? What are the deep layers of my being? You know what you're working with, don't you? You know the situation, you know the resources you have, you know what you are, and you can cast a vision. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you're stuck with, oh, we're tolerant, right? The government tells us we're tolerant. <laughs> we're welcoming. Mm. We're not tolerant. We're welcoming mm. until you breach the moral order, until you breach the Englishman's moral order. Then we enforce it. You mm. act English, right? This idea of tolerance is a state deception of a true value underneath which is welcoming you're welcoming mm. if you if you become you know what we are or if you are, mm. are of what we are it's quite natural to enforce a foreigner who comes to a country into a proper way of being right mm. think about it. you get these lists of values that are sent from the government they're all either a mischaracterization perhaps sometimes by accident whatever but usually a mischaracterization of something that is deep down sometimes they're connected but usually it's pacifying Anyway, yeah. So, what um, <laughs> yeah. What, what what I'm curious is, um, so you you describe it as as Anglo-Saxon being. Um, mm. the, since the Anglo-Saxons, the, the I guess the Angles and the the Saxons settled and um, produced a composite people. We have had, I guess, a bunch of Viking invasions, so maybe some Scandinavian influence, and they're very significantly the the Norman conquest. Mm. Um, so, is there a is there in the spirit of the Englishman also import from the continent? Um, are you distinguishing the the part of an Englishman that is Anglo-Saxon? Um, presumably in a, at a metaphysical level, if you had a, well, I guess a, a Norman overlord breeding with a, a, a an Anglo-Saxon peasant, that child would then have metaphysically both the Anglo-Saxon spirit and, and the Gallic spirit. Um, so how, how does a, how does an Englishman think about his relation to the, to the Anglo-Saxon people? Well, I think we well, go to emergence here, right? When you look to emergence, what emergence is, is that things are not the sum of their parts, 
Of mm. course, Anglo-Saxon is the best word for it. But the Anglo-Saxon is something that's unique. Think about it. It's a compound of two things that mm. ended up in England, right? Mm -hmm. so the Anglo-Saxon is nothing more than English, but still, it's an emergent people. One thing, as we look to Heidegger, is that, be is that, that being is brought in. So the land, the very land, is brought in the way it mm. is. It's an island. Mm. It's brought into being. We are metaphysics, right? We're not just mm -hmm. biology. We're metaphysics as well. Yes, so yes there's a yes. genetic component. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying mm -hmm. we are. So the land brings something in, too. The very... You have to think about metaphysics is metaphysis which is met the meta above physis. If you look back to Greek original being, it's the bringing in of being. So constantly you're bringing being. Anyway, that digs out a deep thousand year, thousand year way of being of place. But if we look to emergence, the best way to think about this, because it's a dynamic system, not the sum of it part, its parts. You have these things that come together over an epoch. You could call it a new people, right? They're not just the Germans where they came from. Hmm. They, they, they're, they're the combination of Germans, whatever, and the, some, and the parts together when they arrive. But a dynamic system, if you think about a generator, when you get three generators, you put them together on belts and they're all, they all are on together on belts, right? What hmm. happens when you do that and you link these different generators together on the belts is they start to regulate each other's speed. They form a higher order regulating bubble, you could say. So they call that a bifurcation, which is in complexity science, goes up a level. But the borders of that once, once the emergent thing happens, they're held what that is, right? So you can take the same case with the Anglo-Saxon. It's a people. Because you have to get to a point where you say, oh, how far can you take it back? Oh, they're just German. Oh, but they're just Indo-European. Oh, but they're just, they're, you know, you see? But that's where, mm -hmm. and so the emergence helps us understand this. Is it a bang? No. Land. And I usually use an epoch. I say, okay, a people is a thousand-year thing. Bang. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I mean, there's no better case than England than having <laughs> a new people with an island. And you see it constantly. Yeah. And it's different. And you see, the common law is a great example of this. That's not... The common law is a radically traditional example, though. It's saying when the system and the state goes outside of what the being of this people are... Hmm. It's reinforced by the people and says, no, back to, to tradition, return to tradition, mm. back to tradition, right? You don't see that common law anywhere else. That's really unique to us. And remember, that's just a evident evidence of, of this thing underneath, which you could call native authority. But again, this is not liberal. It's not, uh, it, you could call it sort of connected to don't tread on me, but that's mis uh, sort of mischaracterized as the individual thing. No, it's not just that. It's, it's, uh, it's the people as a whole. It's the son of the kin. Kinning as a word, right? King. That means son of the kin. Kinning. That's where it comes from. Huh. Anglo-Saxon, right? Wow. What's that mean? What does that mean? It means the king is the emergent son of the kin. A hyper-agent mm. between them all. The son of, right? And the king, as a human, he is supposed to represent embody and enact this English being that's between all of us, right? As we see what the common law is connected to. Again, it's not the common law itself. It's this tendency of, of it's written on our hearts, the imperiums within, right? And Vola mm. talks about that with the Frankish kings, but only the lords have it with them. For us, the yeoman has it too over time, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as you raised King, I had a, I had a question that I had to slip in um, on this subject. So you, you 
you you often talk about the the overking, mm. um, and I have to I have to wonder, um, do you see this concept uh, chiming with biblical ideas of like Jesus being the the you know king above all kings, uh, or, or are these just concepts operating in different spaces? What's the is there is there a connection? Yeah, well, yeah, of course, right. You, I mean, you just think about it like an angel. So it's not; it's still under Christ. I mean, the pagans, you could t- take it for Thor, if you like, whatever, under whatever, Woden, fine. But it's under Christ, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I know in orthodoxy there is this idea that uh, the king is the icon of God. I would say the king is the icon of the overking, and the overking is the icon of God. I just think that's, I mean, I'm just thinking, I don't want to be a heretic or anything. I'm just, this is what I observe. <laughs> this is what I yeah, observe. Sure. English angel, he is supposed to imitate the overking, which is particular to uh, overking. I use overking because they're Anglo-Saxon words. Hyper agent mm. is 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 hyper agent. It, it's it's uh, Roman, right? Hyper. Uh-huh. It's a, but it means above. But it helps. It, it really people That's go. Right. What does that mean? Because they're not Anglo-Saxon words. It's easier to use the overking. But then you go when you hear overking, you think some fantasy drama <laughs> or something yeah. like that. But it's simple. But I chose over king because it's over, above, the between, intersubjective, and kinning, intersubjective son of the kin. Hmm. That's what the over king is. Angel, you could use angelology, whatever. I know angel, right? People watching this for tourists watch this go, well, what's he talking about? What's he talking about, <laughs> angels? <laughs> but, I mean, people are talking about this hyper agent, like we mentioned earlier, right? This could look to hmm. sociology, the ethnological hmm. unit of the Nunarud, which Dugan talks about. Right, this is above just the ethnos in terms of genes. It's the soul, right, and it's inter- it's connected and go- across. And it's based on a pantheon of our greatest heroes, really, our most distinct features. But then you go, you might say, well, hang on, on the continent they also have that value, but it's not just that; it's the intensity of it. So it's the order mm-hmm. of it and how strong yeah. it is, because it can be hard. So when someone looks to an English, when I describe an English thing, oh, English things, and they go, well, that's on the con- that one might be on the continent. Well, is it as intense? Because it's about the attractor of that value. Mm. And so when you list something of, as values as well, you are propositionalizing it too. So you never capture the full value, but it does help to do it. And it's work we need to do to get rid of the regime stuff so we can get back our proper, authentic energy, which is underneath mm. and goes across Kanzik. It's not just the Englishman is in Australia. He's in these things as an ethnic people. Are there so everyone needs that everyone needs mm. that and, and looking to the mythos is the most useful source to get to that yeah I, I wonder if one of the challenges is people thinking that you can do everything in language because if if you were to ask somebody to describe in you know in words mm. their mother's face um, and what makes their mum look distinctive they'd have a really difficult time saying like, yeah. well, I guess, you know, they might get eye color. They might get, you know, some, some superficial things, but mm. th- they have this really um, intuitive and very strong and clear sense that when they see the, they can conjure it to mind, but they just can't describe it. And uh, it feels mm. this, it's a similar thing that, you, you know, you could say Anglo-Saxon means, uh, earthy and grounded and welcoming and th- these are all truths but then there is also this just sense of you know if you mm. think of somebody from 
Japan. They have a Japanese essence that you you kind of can't quite explain. And you know, if you think of your fellow Englishmen, then you're you know, it's a it's a rich and and complex yes. spirit, but not one that you can articulate necessarily. One hundred percent, and that's why uh, you have to use the things, mythos, the symbols to do it, because mm. these are a call it a psychotechnology if you want to get hat tipped academic about it right you want mm. to get uh, fedora wearing academic about it symbol is used to mediate something that's transcendent right it is transcendent in the sense that and these values are because we are under their throw we can't get to them and this is what when i talk about all this stuff it's based in in you know, material value ethics this is sheller mckillchrist talks about sheila or sheller right material value ethics and they talk when they phenomenologically they're observing these values that are they're right there. You can get a sense of them and their attunement, right? But they're, you're under their throw. It's, you're a subject to them in the set, right? Mm. That's subjective. So it's hard to access. So they're kind of transcendent. So how do you access them? Story. Story is one way of doing it. Symbolism. Perspective. Ritual. Practice where you can get into the perspective to see what Englishness is, right? So it's mm -hmm. more than one thing. And you get a sense of it. You need all these things together. And so the propositional rendering of these things is very limited, um, but it's at least a way of clearing, um, clearing the regime's BS and getting us closer to that and aligning it. Because that work must always go on. That endless asking of the question of being. What, where is this? What's the essence of this? Where does it come from? What is it? Who we are? That must go on, right? Because the proposition will always become uh, uh, pacified. Hmm. But yeah, 100% agree with you. You have to... Uh, have these other things that get you into the perspective to know it. To know it is not just hear a description. You have to go do a certain a particular practice. You can observe the behaviors. And when you observe the behaviors, you, you see it. Because luckily, it's in you <laughs> as an Englishman mm -hmm. or as an Anglo-Saxon in Australia, Canada, New Zealand. Um, even the United States, for the Anglos in the United States, you'll get a sense. It'll feel right. Even Anton mm -hmm. Scalia said, who has an Italian ancestry, he went to England. He felt at home for some reason. Something's here that interesting. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to throw in for from a Christian perspective that um I don't think we can go along with this as as you were saying, regime view that, that it's um the, the thing that uh, makes us British is is simply shared by anybody from around the world as you know, as soon as they land on these shores, that there's no <laughs> yeah. kind of inherent characteristics. Mm. Um Two examples I would I would give from scripture. Um, you've got the the Jewish people being described over and over as a stiff necked people, and I think mm -hmm. that is intended as this group indifference to other people groups. And mm -hmm. and then similarly, you've got it um, in Titus this description of <laughs> so it says what what of Crete's own prophets has said. Uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Uh, that's the quote. And then Paul f commenting on it says, this saying is true, <laughs> therefore rebuke them sharply. So he's he's kind of, I mean, these are both negative um, attributions in this case. I, I'm sure if I thought harder, I could find some some positive ones as, as well. But this is to say um, the, the idea of characterizing a group of people by some values and behaviors that they they exhibit on mass is just i mean it's just assumed throughout most of 
human history and all, all cultures people mm-hmm. have just known it until recently but you know i wanted to give examples biblically right this mm. is this is just a a part of human nature that it's 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 requiring education for people to stop believing in well i mean why why does that happen you have to ask it's not just uh the the dislike of the other it's that you have a certain structure of evaluate evaluation in you that, mm. that oh that's that feels different something going on here with this pattern of behavior it's different like i said earlier with the frenchman example they cease and you yeah. notice this when you go overseas you say oh yeah and the foreign is quite useful to identify differences i use that all the time in my work i've read plenty of texts that uh the german mm. talking about the Englishman. you have to be careful to get rid of the tropes you have to get underneath the tropes like oh english okay. hat wearing tea drinking right. Right, <laughs> but no. Yeah, you see, this is the you trouble. want to get beyond the one-dimensional analysis. That's why I try to use the mythos is just so useful because no one author mm. wrote it, no one, no one person, and their intention wasn't to map our way of being. It was for yeah. other reasons. So you look to it and you go, ah, great, because they're not mm. going to put a bunch of tropes in. They're just going to be the way they are. It's like looking at someone when they don't know they're being watched mm. when it's a different reason. Mm. So. Can, I can think that's written on the hearts of the different people. So that people, mm-hmm. yes, it's because their p- procedural patterns are different. That's why. And, and so they are fundamentally, they are different. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the land? So specifically the, the British Isles, mm-hmm. what, is, what are the distinctive features and how have they influenced uh, the, the being? Well, clearly being an island, right? So mm-hmm. you could say that influences a native authority, this idea that you are an alter imperium, right? Mm-hmm. As Enoch Powell talks about, this is an English thing. And so look, when we talk about British, usually what they do in such a perversion when they do this with British is they take English features and they put a civic label on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so then everyone thinks they're, they're that when they come to the country. It's just wrong, right? I see. Wrong. So do, do, do you think, because um, I... I you can sense a difference in the Welsh and the Scottish yeah. as well, but you could probably break that down fractally and say yeah. um, the the people who live one mile inland have a sort of difference to the people who are who who've, their yeah. village is is right on the coast. Um, so, what's the most what's the most useful scale of analysis in in a sense? Like, um, do you find the political boundaries? result in a, a kind of cohesive national identity mm. no <laughs> only no. to a certain degree only to a certain degree yeah. because you've got some lowland scots that uh they've always spoken english right okay. borderlanders right, right. they've always spoken yeah. english yeah. they wear the borderlands tartan of the northumberland of northumberland mm. uh this is walter scott and that's an Eng- that's that cheviot sheep for one is an english sheep it's raised by uh, monks on the borderland for hundreds of years before it was bought, brought across the border, and that's tweed. The, S, the tweed is what is eventually made out of Cheviot sheep, right? But they, these shepherds wore this um, shepherd's maud or shepherd's uh, tartan, you could call it, and that predates t- dyes. So it's a, English also wore it in, in North England. So yeah, there is an element where you just cross the border, you cross the border in the borderlands. They all have the same culture. So I just mm. call them all English because they all spoke English, <laughs> and the sort of lowland so, Scots won't like that. But, so the lowland Scottish share similarities with the, yeah, in many ways, the rest yeah. of the lowlands versus the highlands, which produces a different character. Well, yeah, I think you, 
a good way. It's really hard. You're cr constantly crossing into different hermeneutics when you're jumping across these things. It's hard work mm. trying to work out what's mm. distinct, what here holds as a solid hermeneutic. Celtic's mm. pretty helpful. The Highlanders mm. are Celtic. They always spoke Gaelic. Language is, an all, language is a big thing, but not always. Okay. Um, Northern Irish, you go, well, what's that? Is that Irish? Well, hang on. They were Calvinists uh, mm -hmm. in, in uh, Scotland. Lowland Scots who were sent there, plus uh, Anglo-Saxons who went to Northern Ireland. So those people really are, have that English thing, right? And at least metaphysically. You can use genetics if you want. That's fine. But how much do you get from that? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just not my area of expertise. Epigenetics to some degree, I imagine. But yeah, I use Celtic, uh, the Highlander. I would say, okay, that's the, if you closely get to that, the closer you get to Ireland and perhaps deep Wales, they, uh, they had their language for quite a while, right? There's the differences. Mm. Um, they're mm. hard to identify. But usually, if you want to identify, you go to the original Celtic gods. That's what helps, right? When you go to the mythos and the heroes, you go, oh, okay, what was their highest god? It's hard with Celts, but there was a legend that um, with the Celts that, um, not a legend, a story, the Greeks went to visit them, or the Romans went to visit them, and they saw there was Hercules that was dressed up. Uh, and, they, and Hercules had his tongue, uh, connected to his tongue, were, on all these gold chains were all this group of people on this drawing. He was old, though. Hercules was old with his like, club. They're all connected to a long tongue of Hercules. And uh, the, the Roman or the Greek goes up to the Celt and says, what are you doing? You're making fun of uh, Hercules here. He says, no, no, no. This is our uh, god. Because Hercules is the chief hero, right? Chief hero. Uh, this, is, this is, we take him in this way. But our guy, his power is his power of, of speech and storytelling, right? You kind of see this in the Celtic, the gift of the gab that the Irish have, don't they? Mm, Real. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. have it too. We have it too, but they have this gift of the gab. That's the, and that's yeah. probably because it was their highest value hmm. so it's valuated higher than it is for us we have it too but it's valuated highest for them that gift of the gab that storytelling that that um, joke making i think you see that in scotland as well i don't know do you recognize that as a, as a, a treat you've seen yourself yes yeah, yeah I, I i think that's it's spot on it's, it's one of those things where you you can refer to something and it, even though you've never heard somebody pointed out before it's you've you've at some level deeply observed it i mean that's mm. a lot how comedy works isn't it it's mm. it's the familiarity of somebody's put a a word to something that you hadn't yes. you hadn't previously thought of but at some deep level you had thought yes. of it which that's, i guess is the the unconscious <laughs> that's my work that is the essence of what i do <laughs> it's that it's it's to link those things together and you go oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. right yeah. Uh, links together and then people, I mean, the criticism people might have about when you bring up a mythos story is that, oh, it's a symbol. You can apply that to anywhere else. Okay, well, apply Robin Hood to the French Revolution, right? Mm. As, a, as a rebellion. Apply that to America. Does that fit? Mm. No, it doesn't. Because mm. that's a revolution. It's different. Yeah. It might be a yeah. tendency on the American side, a tendency that pushes. But overall, it does not apply to those things because they're not radically traditional. Anyway, that's just an example of someone might criticize this. Said, oh, it's just you could just apply that somewhere else, and you'll go, yeah, no, no. Give it's it a try. Behavior. Give it a try with certain other things. That's of course mm. what I do. I'm not gonna just pick something and have this confirmation bias. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. that would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's only so much time you could do these things before you run out of energy. But yeah, I try the best <laughs> I can to have to test it and make sure it's not a false construct. And that's where you can mm. use the tools of 
psychology, social science, where they try to uh, falsify the construct, right? You test it with a, you test how similar your values are to the other values you've mm -hmm. constructed in your construct. You go, does that match that? And you test your model with other models. And that's how you get an idea of whether it's uh, true. You take evidence from different fields or whatnot to try to confirm it. There's only so much of that I can do because I'm you know, only one guy with occasional assistance from other people. But um, yeah, it's, uh, that's the thing that gives you vitality that, ah, oh, yes. And the more of that you get that you just had, right? That, oh, this aligns. Yeah. The more vital force that is underneath because it's the truth that's been lied to for so long about all this stuff. So, and the geo borders don't make up for people. The ethnos mm. does. Right, and even mm -hmm. or the Narod, at least, as a soul. So this idiocy that we've been this wholesome chungus gladio nationalism is what Geo calls it, <laughs> and he's right. The wholesome chungus gladio nationalism is given to the Welsh and the Scots and this and all these people, fake nationalism with fake values that doesn't reflect what their being are. And same with us. Uh, but at least with us, it's too powerful with the English to do. To, to, to actually push Nash, a fake, even gladio nationalism with the English, there's too many of them. So if you do that, you put yourself at risk. That's why there is no English nationalism. That's why, that's why they keep it under wraps, because it's the majority right. of the population. It's too dangerous to the regime to do that. So mm, it applies across really... borders. Sorry, go on. I'm just ranting. I was, I was just going to agree, because um, that does feel like English nationalism mm. is stamped on hard versus mm. the other types of nationalism. And um, that must, to some degree, reflect that it is a danger, um, whereas the others are not. And that chimes very well with the concept that the others are constructed and don't, mm. you know, they don't have the potency and strength of of a, you know, a reflection of a true group that's given mm. a title has the power of the group, whereas a, um, a a title that doesn't attach to anything doesn't you know it, it's a pointer to nothing that's a confusion, so it's not, isn't it? yeah the fact that you've got a pointer doesn't inherently give it potency mm. um but, but but you can detect the, the there's something about english nationalism that is a that would be a rebellion i mean it's interesting that anglo-saxon still has that sort of explanatory power because mm. you get the sense that there is still this sort of um even though the, there was the Norman conquest and a great deal mm. of, um, <clears throat> you know, integration between the two cultures, mm. but you, mm. I, I, you can kind of sense some level of almost like the um, the hard working class British values mm. um, that are reflected by Anglo Saxonism to to this yeah. day, right? Yes. Um, the, 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 the division is still not completely s sealed up between the, t the and the, the international element of the UK that is happy to move around the world and take mm. in different cultures is linked to the, the fancy French parts Maybe. of our language. Maybe. Yes. I've noticed this about the language is that there is this feel different parts of English language have a certain attunement. French sort of you know, it's like a. Uh, sorry, you got someone else up there, but hang on, I'll just. Um, I, French I, 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 to, oh, you're doing I'm a crossover. To have My a bit bad. of crossover. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if this French, works. French as a, a part of the English language. I'm sure Dave will know about this actually. So French has a sort of uh, uh, sophisticated feel to it as an attunement. 
And so if you ever want to feel it's a bit feminine to us, not to them, to them, they've got their own feel to their from within. But to us, when we use French words, it has that sophisticatedness. And so you could say that there is that element of the draw of the uh, of the people in the Westminster bubble to be pushed to do that. But I think deep down with English, what kind of culture or what kind of language survives an invasion? What kind of powerful being survives a French invasion where they're forced to eventually use English eventually as well? That's pretty impressive. Because mm. most of the time when you have a new uh, invasion, they force their own language on everyone. Somehow English survives whatever decisions were made. But yeah, the language has different attunements. Uh, the academics are constantly using these um, these uh, Latin words to describe scientific phenomena, and they really actually confuse people. The Germans have this advantage: is that they their language is very pure, pure. Their language is very pure in terms of grounded in no foreign words. But that mm. could be an advantage to English as well. But yes, mm. I think it's a very powerful thing. I think even for the aristocrats, um, I think stiff upper lip actually represents uh, the proper Anglo-Saxon thing that's underneath, which is bleak heroic necessity. But what stiff upper lip does is it, especially for the middle class, uh, is it restricts them and, and uh, stops their gregariousness, which is naturally Anglo-Saxon. They have a gregariousness. Even Chesterton talks about this great gregari gregariousness, right? And so it's true, stiff upper lip, of our actual behavior in apocalyptic situations. It comes from the old co cosmology. It's still evaluated, right? So it's true, mm. but... So when you talk about the upper class, not necessarily, because you've got this deep uh, uh, traditional up, upper class, right? The traditional Britain group represents this, and they're, they're connected to it. But I think that concept, that it gets pasted on top, can confuse people.